On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, and welcome back to On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. This is Blake Wright, and I'm here today with Chris Way and Michelle Ross, and we're going to dig into some church history. So today, I'd love to get into some of the stuff that... um, Maybe a little question raising, but before we do that, I want to do the good news minute with Chris and Michelle. So I'll start so they can have a second to think about it. But um, do you guys want to just say hi real quick? I feel like I've just been talking my, my head off. <laughs> hi, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hi. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I'll start my good news minute. Um, so just recently I quit my job, which I've been, I've been trimming trees for nine years for the power company. And in case any of them are listening, I don't want to be too harsh, but I absolutely loathed that place. It is the worst job in the world. I've had several jobs. The management's terrible. I don't want to burn bridges by them hearing this, but it was just awful. I'm so much happier now. Yeah. And a small portion of my soul was lost every single day I worked there, which is why some listeners will probably be like, oh, well, that's why he's doing this podcast now because he doesn't have a soul. Um <laughs> But since then, I've gone on a cruise. I've been traveling a lot. I've just been loving my life. And that's just the greatest news ever. I've been wanting to quit for like eight and a half years. Wow. So wait, did you like get another job or are you taking a break or what? I took a break for a minute and traveled around a little bit. And then, um, which by the way, I went on a cruise, which could be another good news minute. And it was the best. I went with a friend and her family and it was just so fun. Where was the cruise? um, we went out of California to Catalina Island and Ensenada, Mexico. Oh, I love Catalina ranch dressing. <laughs> <laughs> and well, it was cool too to be in Ensenada because um, there's some church history there. We sent some of the colonies down there to maintain the celestial law while we were trying to get statehood and stuff like that. So that ah. was kind of fun. Did you see any That's of where that? Um, not really. You could like look past the heels and know where they're at and a lot of the locals knew about it um but Mitt Romney and his family is from there so that was kind of neat so I've been on that same cruise and um it was like storming the whole time and we couldn't land on Catalina Island and that's like (laughs) the main thing we couldn't land there so we went down to Ensenada and we got out and Ensenada is like as big as my apartment and so we were and there weren't like very many excursions when I went, so we were only on at Ensenada for like half the day, and then we got back on the ship. And uh, it was, it, I mean, it was a still a fun time, but yeah, it was not my favorite cruise that I'd ever done. But it was storming the whole time. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. I've actually done the same cruise once before, and I had fun. But this time around, I just it was just so great. I had so much fun, mainly because the people yeah, I was with. That makes a huge difference. Which, I hate, I hate to say that because the last time I went was with my family. So. <laughs> I, I had fun like, with I them hate too. Them. I hate those people. <laughs> oh shoot! 
But yeah, how about you, Michelle? You have anything good news to share with us? So I just had the best weekend. And uh, it was really hard today to go to work because I just had a really good weekend. I spent a lot of like a ton of time outside. I played some soccer. I um, went trail running. I uh, now I like can't remember half of what I did. Oh, I went up to Oktoberfest and um, I had like a get together with some girlfriends up Big Cottonwood Canyon at a cabin. Um, got together with some family Sunday night. It was just it was just a really good weekend. You know, like those weekends when everything you do is fun and you're in, like you enjoy all the people you're with. All we- anyway, it was one of those weekends. It was just really good. What about you, Chris? Um, I also had a great weekend. Yeah, my, I think my good my good news minute is probably the last two weekends combined because two weeks ago. My parents came into town and visited me for a few days, and that was really fun. Um, they are listeners of the podcast, and they like it. Woo! Nice. I was very nervous. Hi, brother hear. and sister way. Yeah. Hi, guys, if you're still listening. Um, yeah, I was nervous for them to hear the one about sex, but, uh, yeah, they seem, to, uh, they seem to enjoy the podcast. So uh, it was awesome. fun to chat with them about stuff. I feel like hanging out with my family is always fun, but it's always like there's – it's always so different than my normal life because there's just kids everywhere. You know, my nephews and nieces who are awesome. Um, but it's not the same as like what I'm used to in my day to day, which is interacting with other adults and talking about like adult things, you know? Uh, so it was nice to hang out with my parents without any kids and just like to be able to chat about whatever and to not be our conversations and our activities didn't have to kind of follow the needs of, tiny humans which is great i'm not anti-kids for the record um <laughs> it was really like fun it. it was really fun to be able to connect with them in that way and talk about uh politics and religion and in-depth ways um and then this past weekend uh, i had other visitors um derek clements and katie kyle some of our listeners might know derek i'm just going to go ahead and plug his podcast because it's awesome and everyone should listen to it it's called mosaic have you guys listened to mosaic yet no i haven't it's really great. And he has a two part episode about the like the Me Too, the Mormon Me Too movement specifically and how like the whole McKenna Denson story and everything. And he interviews her. And uh, anyway, he's a great podcaster. Um, and I had a great time chatting with them all weekend. And yeah, feel good. That's my good news minute. Well, cool, guys. Thank you so much for sharing. We love yeah. hearing good news over here on the other side. So this topic when I was going through it, I wanted to keep it like as concise and um, just surface as I could, but um, there's quite a bit of information. So hopefully we can get through most of it, but I just kind of wanted to go through, I think a lot of um, millennials who have maybe transitioned out of their faith uh, today aren't so much interested in the deep doctrinal issues or maybe the historical issues. Um, they maybe just don't find religion as a place and has a place in their lives, or they just don't resonate with some of the maybe outdated teachings. I might be projecting a little bit, but what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think that resonates with me. I mean, um, to me, the history of the LDS church is really fascinating from like an academic perspective, but it's not something that weighs on my soul the way that like, the LDS institution's behavior does, you know? And so a big reason for my faith crisis was not necessarily whether the doctrine or the history lined up in ways that I thought were satisfying, but it was more just like, 
the emotion of interacting with the institution after I saw hurt people. So the history was like the last thing on my mind um, as I was transitioning. See, it was the opposite for me. Um, Not saying that the, the, um, like the issues surrounding church policies were they, those were not the last things on my mind, but the reason why I left the church really, it came down to, I mean, it's like I started questioning really the strictness of all the rules within the church, but then it's like the history because I think it's because the church you're taught, like the church is true. Right. And so, um, when I started delving more into the history and just realizing that there were so many lies there, it made me angry at the institution of the church as well, actually more like the current leadership, but it really was like, like I remember the moment where I was listening to a podcast, probably Mormon stories and they were talking about the temple and, uh, it was just so, I mean, how it originally was is completely different than how it is now. And I think they were talking about like the washings in the temple and there's like tubs in there or something in the Salt Lake Temple. And uh, I just was like, oh, wow, this is all bullshit. And that was like my moment. I like took off my garments, never went back to church and was done. And it had taken me a long time to get there, but it was like, historical issue piled on historical issue piled on historical issue because I think I could have forgiven them their social lapses I think I could have forgiven that because I felt like they were they're a conservative church they're just delayed they're always like 20 years behind they'll eventually catch up you know like I always made excuses for their sexism and their racism and the thing like the policies against um you know homosexuals and or whatever. And I could forgive them of that for some reason. Cause I just thought it was like a lapse in time. But when I felt like it was all a lie, like the historical issues, then, then I, I knew I had to leave. That being said, I think every millennial has a different story and probably a lot more feel the way Chris does. Um, and I, and I say that only because Well, I don't know. I mean, you do surveys and like different Facebook groups and you like historical issues tend to always be the number one reason why people leave. And I think about, have you guys ever um, seen the three Mormons? They're like, they, they do this YouTube video, like these YouTube videos, they're called three Mormons. And I watched this episode the other day and they're like talking about the seer stone and And they're all active members and they're apologists. And um, I was just watching them and they're all millennials. And I was just like, and they were talking about the seer stone and all this history as though it was just like normal. And I was like, no, I never heard about any of that in church. Like, and you're talking about it as though it's like no big deal. And those of us who have left because of it are so weird. And like, we just don't get it. And like, why would that bother us? You know? And I'm like, it's because it was all a lie. (laughs) Like, Like, that's how I felt. And for me, it's it's almost the opposite of Michelle's, where I could almost forgive them the social or the historical aspects. Um, it wasn't until I got into the social aspects, but I really, um, I really dove deep into the historical portions because I always, not always, but for a long time, I felt like 
exercising your test or exercising your faith meant struggling with it. And there's a scripture that I'd always go back to in Genesis 32. Um, it's when Jacob is wrestling with at, at first is wrestling with just some dude. He's like, who are you? And uh, he ends up prevailing and he says, you know, you've, you've wrestled with God and emerged victorious or something like that. And so from now on, you shall no longer be known as Jacob. You will be Israel and Israel is now, you know, all the 12 tribes and we're all striving to be sons and daughters of Israel and that kind of thing. So I always thought like wrestling with God and struggling with God was like an ideal. So you want to like wrestle with these tough, tough topics. And I just loved doing that. Um, And I always contrasted that with Islam, which the word Islam literally means to submit to God or, or, you know, just to submit. So Hmm. I always just, even when I was a true faithful believer, I always loved diving into the history because that's where I found the most troubling stuff where I could exercise my, my faith. And so I'd like to just touch on some of the troubling aspects that some people may encounter when they start going down this rabbit hole. Um, And everything that I have prepared can be dealt with via Fair Mormon, which is a church apologetic site. You can even find a lot of them on LDS.org where they have the gospel topic essays. Um, So they do have uh, two sides to the coin. And I, I, uh, strongly suggest anybody who's interested in this stuff to to go look at those sources as well. So you're not just hearing it from us. But um, so first up is the first vision. We've we've all heard of the first vision, right? Yeah. Um, Joseph Smith went into a wooded area. I've heard of it. A light descended upon him. Yeah. And so Sounds what 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 what's that story? That story is like uh, one of the first lessons in the missionary lesson book, right? Michelle? It's the first one. It's the first thing it's the very when first you like one. contact people on the street, that is the first thing you, you, you just, you, well, we had it memorized, but there's like the scripture. It's the story of Joseph Smith in the woods and God, the father and Jesus Christ. Yeah, to him. And, and essentially, yeah, he goes into the woods and sees God and Jesus as separate personages. And God tells Joseph to listen to his beloved son and Jesus tells Joseph that he's forgiven his sins. None of the other churches are true and to start your own. And that's been referred to as the keystone of our religion, uh, especially in the earlier days. Now it's more so the book of Mormon, but why have you guys heard of why that's troubling? Uh, Well, are you referring to the fact that there are multiple accounts of how that vision went down and that they, they differ with each other in the details of, of what Joseph described? Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that was a big surprise for me early on is um, not the fact that there are different accounts because that makes sense, right? It's one of the most important sure. things, but that the accounts differ so much. And do you guys know some of the yeah, major well, differences? Yeah, some of them, it's, it's not Jesus oh. and God. It's just God alone. Is that right? Or in some of them, it's just angels. I don't remember yeah. exactly the details. Some of them, but, it's just, yeah. well, one of them, it's just an angel. One of them, it's angels. One of them, it's the Lord, and then one there's, of them, it's God. If I remember yeah. right, there's also um, a discrepancy, not just in who shows up, but in what they say. So instead of uh, telling Joseph, like, all these other churches are an abomination, uh, none of them are exactly true, there are some accounts where none of that kind of talk is even present. It's more of a just like, hey, your sins are forgiven kind of visit. So Joseph... Goes, exactly. Yeah. You guys are just so smart. I love it. And <laughs> oh, thank you. What's, 
what's, <laughs> what one detail that really hits home for me too is um, the first version of this didn't come out until 12 or so years after the event was supposed to have taken place. Um, and Joseph Smith's interpretation of the Godhead, like God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, as we know it today, is three separate entities. Well, I say we yeah. know it today. As Latter-day Saints preach it today, um, Joseph Smith didn't adopt that version of the Godhead until like 1833 or so, um, which is after the Book of Mormon was published. And so you say, well, no, I've read in the Book of Mormon, there's two separate entities. He's always referred to as the son of God. And um, that was actually edited later. And that's a huge problem for some people, including myself. Like if you're writing something that's supposed to be the word of God and he doesn't even know how to refer to himself, that, that kind of raises red mm -hmm. flags, you know, and then they edit it later to add the son of God for clarity's sake. Hey, I have a question um, about that. Can you get, where can you access like original copies of the Book of Mormon? Because you hear this all the time, but I've actually never seen like an early copy of the Book of Mormon. Can you see those in the Church History Museum? Uh, you can, um, not, you couldn't like read through them, but the church just barely like three or four months ago purchased um, one of the early manuscripts of the Book of Mormon for like $30 oh million dollars from the feet of Christ. Well, they finally got it, huh? Yeah, it was the biggest. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the biggest single, it's the largest single purchase of a document in, in history. Cool. So um, <laughs> so now, and, and we've got it. You can't see that one in the church history library, but there's another one. That, that has like the original, there, um, uh, like what what's it called? The trilogy or not trilogy. The three together. What's that called? Um, like, the, you wouldn't be able to read that because it's all like handwriting and you could like you couldn't rummage through it and they wouldn't let what you about touch it printed for sure. Copies? Um but yeah, you can you can just Google like early manuscripts and changes and just go down that rabbit hole and you'll find all sorts of inconsistencies. Um my favorite one that I'll be pulling from a little later, uh actually next, is um the the title page or the introduction was edited most yeah, recently. Yeah, I have in 2013. the yeah, I have and, the version. Right, and they that. changed it so instead of Lehi and his descendants are the principal ancestors of the Native Americans, they are among the ancestors, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep, among the ancestors of American Indians. And there's another um edit in the introduction too that says God this is a uh this is an account of, quote, God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants. And then it was edited to God's dealings with ancient inhabitants. So they removed the oh, okay. the, yeah. which implies when it includes the, the it implies that, that one. this is all the inhabitants. Yeah, of ancient yeah the new exactly. one uh, makes more so, sense from an archaeological perspective, right? Because it's if Lehi and his descendants were real people, it would be very unlikely for them to populate the entire you know, American continents <laughs> alone. Um, yeah. So it makes more and, sense, even just in the text of the Book of Mormon, that they were probably mingling with other civilizations. Yeah. And, and that, that on as face value, I don't think is troubling to a whole lot of people, but um, a lot of people remember in the early nineties, they, they referred to him as like the Camelot years when a lot of people were getting like excommunicated for, you know, speaking about things like, wait a second, the DNA is yeah. not matching up or the historicity is not. And, um, I was with some 
some friends on vacation when this news dropped, when I, when I found out about this news. And I was saying like, oh, can you believe that they're kind of changing their stance from it's all Native Americans to just a portion of them? And my friend said, well, we never claimed mm. them to be. <laughs> and that really sticks with me because one, yes, we did. But people have literally been excommunicated for claiming them yeah. to be. And that's like when I was listening to those three Mormons um, YouTube videos, that's exactly how they sounded. They were like, yeah, you know, and he had seer stones. Like he had found a seer stone, like the Urim and Thummim, which are seer stones, the Urim and Thummim, which are seer stones. Like, and I was like, okay, we never called them seer stones, you know? So, but yeah, people, yeah. I feel like people are being, it. I don't know, kind of the churches putting this stuff out there slowly is kind of working for some people. So, so it sounds like just to, just to reiterate or to like rephrase, make sure I'm understanding. It sounds like you guys are saying that what's troubling isn't necessarily the news stance or the new framing of these narratives or these historical details or these details in the text or whatever. What's troubling is that the church is changing the narrative to make it look as if the narrative has never changed to silence any criticism that they have received in the past about having a false narrative when in the past they have been persecuting, punishing, excommunicating, disfellowshipping, et cetera, the people who have been trying to correct these small things. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think both, honestly, because it's troubling to me (laughs) that Joseph Smith looked at a rock and a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. That's why that uh, (laughs) (laughs) because it's weird. I don't know. (laughs) You have an iPhone now. You have an iPhone. Um, It works the same. I I mean, it's very superstitious, right? It's very magical. Uh, So if you don't have like a magical worldview or kind of a superstitious worldview, that's troubling. It's one thing to translate an actual document and say, Oh, I'm translating this. It's another thing to see words appear on a stone in a hat. You know, it's, yeah, it's hard to stomach. And, and that's, that's another topic that I didn't even uh, prepare for, but the magic worldview was pretty common back then. And Joseph Smith was certainly a magic worldview. uh, Er, and, and uh, that, that's arguably how he met Emma Smith was treasure seeking with her dad. And um, I think that's pretty troubling for people, too, that, you know, the 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 jump from speaking to God with a stone in your hat and, you know, finding treasure with sticks and seances isn't that big of a leap, as I think a lot of faithful yeah. members might hope to it me, is. the the stone in a hat in and of itself doesn't bother me. But what bothers me is that it doesn't line up with the um, ostensible importance of the plates in the narrative of the Book of Mormon itself. Because in the Book of Mormon, and for those of our non-member, non-Mormon listeners who might not know, this, this is this record of this ancient people. And throughout the entire record, they keep like all these narrators who are, who are writing this record, keep reiterating how important it is to keep the record. Like someone eventually is going to find this. Someone is going to translate this. This is really important that you write this down. You know, here's the, you know, the epic battle of good and evil in our civilization. We have to write this down. And people are literally dying in this book for the preservation of the book. And so for Joseph to like, not even use the book in the translation process is very strange. I don't think it's strange just because he's looking at a hat. I think it's strange because he's looking in a, had to translate a thing that like cost blood uh, uh, allegedly to to produce and that's that seems like um they could have 
they could have just not written it, written it down, and he could have he could have looked in a hat and and seen a vision and written their entire story. Like, why didn't he just do that? Right? Yeah. Why did God need those people to die? Yeah, like it's all troubling. It really is. Like, if you like, and that's such a good point, Chris. Like, we we skip over that as members of like as like active believing members, or maybe we don't even we're not even attuned to it because we're not allowed to question or kind of think outside the box. And so, I think for me, those kind of things didn't even cross my mind as a member. Um, yeah. But to me, the question is like, if there is a God, then why would He want this, and why would He not want this? Right. So like, if there is a God, and if He and if he was in charge of all these people writing this record, then like, why would he have so much bloodshed in his name just to preserve the metal plates on which the story is written? If they're not even going to use the story in the, in the end like that, that to me is a reckless God who doesn't care about human life. And that's, that's where the theology gets. I like to come at it with the assumption that there is a God. And then if it falls apart, then maybe that's a bad uh, story about God. Maybe that's that story of God is, is harmful, right? Sorry, I cut you off, but. So, emphasize that. Do you guys have any sense anywhere growing up that the plates were not gold? Like, did you ever have a sense that these plates were not like solid gold? No, they were always taught to me. It was always taught to me that they were gold, if I remember right. Yeah, because. I don't know if I was ever taught it, but yeah, I, I see where you're going. And I think I adopted the idea that it was just they're they're called gold so why would they be golden alloys or just (laughs) gold colors which is and i keep referencing i'm going to give these three mormons a lot of um advertising free advertising (laughs) because i keep i keep referencing back to them but as apologists they were talking about that that it was probably like some alloy found down in south america and that looked like gold and i was like i never in a million years did i even think it wasn't gold but there's no way that the plates could have been solid gold. I mean, they would have been far too heavy for him to carry or to lift if they were solid gold. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. They, there's a guy on YouTube and I can't even remember, maybe I can try to link to him, but he, he loves talking about that and going to like, um, Mormon conferences, specifically the Manti pageant and just like showing people how heavy the plates would be like with the most conservative estimates. If they were like, uh, and he talks about like if they were solid gold, just the weight of them bearing down on each other alone would erase the imprints of the plates' writings because it's so soft. Gold's so malleable, yeah. twenty-four karat gold, so malleable. Yeah, it would just it would just flatten out so heavy. But I think he he he's in his math, his most conservative estimations, like one hundred and twenty pounds, is like the lightest that could possibly be with any amount of gold. And Joseph Smith held him under his arm and. <laughs> beat up three guys on his wow. way home and strong dude the woods and if you guys are listening you should check out our instagram i think i posted a picture of me curling <laughs> it with one hand so <laughs> strong. you're a, a man large in stature is that what nephi would say <laughs> yeah even more so than <laughs> joseph smith oh boy i'm gonna get in trouble um but before we get too far off topic i want to i want to quote what joseph fielding smith said about um the seer stone because because it's important about how we kind of whitewash some of these people who paved the way for us uh, millennials here. Um, Joseph Fielding Smith, he was the prophet from 70 to 72, but before that he was the church historian for a lot of years. And he's notoriously known for being a very secretive and closed historian about some of the early documents and stuff. And he um, published a book called Doctrines of Salvation in which he says, 
This was in 1954, he said. There's no authentic statement in the history of this church which states that the use of such a stone was Hmm. used. So he's basically saying there's no credible evidence to say the stone's used. Um, He had the stone in the church history. You know, the church owned the stone. Um, So whether he was aware of it or not may be up for debate, but he's the church historian. And he's definitely aware of some some, uh, documents which – discussed the use of the stone in the hat and then finding the stone and magic looking. Wow. So that's pretty problematic when after 1972, you get Leonard Arrington in there, who's like notoriously really open historian. And he's talking about seer stones and um, it causes a riff and people who grew up with their prophet stating that there's no authentic statement in the history of the church about a seer stone Learning that there's a seer stone is really problematic for a lot of people. It was very problematic for me. I had never heard of that growing up. And I know, and there's sometimes, like I was talking to somebody once and he's like, oh, I knew about that all growing up. And I was like, okay, that's great, but that doesn't make it any less troubling. Um, Because it's still, first of all, seeing, you know, words on a rock in a hat but also because there's not one photo that I, you know, every painting I ever saw of Joseph translating the Book of Mormon was the gold plates in front of him, like turning the pages, you know? So. It's a, yeah. That's a cleaner image. It's easier to get behind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was, there was a lot of reference for, for the Urim and Thummim when I was, yeah. when I was learning about it. Um, and it, it turns out the, if you guys have been keeping up on my fun fact Fridays, I post about this like three or four weeks ago, but the Urim and Thummim, the first use of that phrase in LDS context was by W.W. Phelps in 1833, three years after the Book of Mormon was even published. And before that, they were often referred to as Nephite Mm -hmm. interpreters. And I think um, a lot of times people would just assume that those Nephite interpreters were used for the whole translation of the Book of Mormon, like Joseph Fielding Smith would have you believe. Um, but there's evidence to show that he used the breastplate and the interpreters for a little bit. And then once the 116 pages were gone, he never used them again. He only used huh. the seer stone. So the Book of Mormon, as we have it today, wasn't used, wasn't translated by anything but an alleged seer stone. In a hat. So I think that's. Yeah. In a, I yeah. did read that. Like, I did read your fun fact Friday. I sure did. You did. Good. Thank <laughs> you. You might be the only one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's more for me. I just love doing that. I can't get enough of it. I was I was gonna say it sounds like the um the LDS church, you know, historically has not been open about a lot of these stories and has even at times willfully concealed details of some of these stories and has recently um, kind of changed tactics and has opened up some of these stories. Do you guys think there's any genuine desire to be transparent in there or is it all just uh, like back against the wall? This is good for PR because the internet exists now and uh, we have to be more transparent than we have been. Is it a survival tactic or is it like a, a, you know, a genuine change of heart or is it somewhere in between? I, I just want to know what you guys think about that. I think it's somewhere in between. Um, I, I like to go to the benchmark books releasing of new yeah. Joseph Smith papers. Um, every time they release a new one, which the Joseph Smith papers are an effort to publish everything Joseph Smith ever wrote or dictated. And when they first opened up 
there's a lot of history here that um, we don't have time to get into. But when they first opened the first presidency vault uh, to historians, there were so many documents that they imagined they could publish 37 volumes of this Joseph Smith Papers project. Um, <laughs> since, yeah, since 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 uh, organizing them all, they've realized a lot of them are like duplicates and they can condense them quite a bit. Uh, I think the they're planning on 21 now. I could be wrong on that, but um, whenever they publish a new one, Benchmark Books hold, holds like a little uh, interview with the authors and editors and has them discuss what that particular uh, edition is about. And most recently was the Council of 50 Minutes one, which is so fascinating. Anyway, um, Elder Snow, who is the current church historian, was at one of them, and he discussed how the changes went from Joseph Fielding Smith being super closed off. You had to get first presidency authorization to go to the church history archives. You had to have somebody hovering over you and watching you, and you couldn't take anything out. To Leonard Arrington, you could go in and take photographs. You could publish the stuff that you were researching, and that's why we had this retrenchment in the early 90s after Arrington's reign, um, where they started excommunicating people and trying mm. to close the door. But then right after that, you had the internet pop up. So um, Elder, I asked Elder Snow afterwards, I said, "What? where do you align? Do you align more on the Joseph Fielding Smith or the Leonard Arrington side of your openness? And he said, if it were up to me, I'd open it all. So I think, yeah. the, but that's just the church historian. You know, he is a general authority and he is a church historian, but there are also people in the quorum of the 15, you know, quorum of the 12 and the first presidency that uh, make some of those decisions as well. So I think it depends on the individual and how much. Maybe this is me being cynical, but I honestly don't think they would have. I think they would have kept all of this um, as isolated and secretive as possible, like as long as possible. If the internet hadn't come about and people hadn't started leaving the church because of these historical issues, I don't think they would have felt any need to publish this stuff. And even now, a lot of members don't even, are not even aware of the essays. I was just with a couple of my girlfriends from high school, one of whom is still very active LDS. She did not know about the different versions of the first, of the first vision. She didn't know about the essays. My other friend told me this later. She was talking to her and she's like, yeah, it's, it's on the church's website. And my friend was like, no, it's not. You're not like, that's not true. You're not, you know, and I, and this was literally last week. And I'm like, this, this is quite common. Actually, people still, it's not open. They, they put it online so that they can say that, they never hid this stuff, but I don't know. I, that's my cynical view. But they're not doing their due diligence to advertise it. No, or they're not to, really to sharing. Amplify, amplify yeah. And I think saying. there's some fun history about that too. The, the gospel topic essays were a big project that were funded by the church to have. Um, I hope I don't get any of these details wrong, especially working for this podcast, but I think they commissioned John DeLynn to do research and find out which topics were causing so much strife within people leaving the church. And he found like the top 10 to 12 issues that were causing people so much strife and subsequently Hmm. started publishing these essays and not including any research that he would link to, but mostly apologetics like Brian Hales and polygamy and stuff. And which I love Brian Hales, uh, but he's very apologetic. And then, um, and then, you know, we all know John DeLynn got excommunicated for, 
openly discussing some of the things that he was commissioned by the church to. No, to it's because he had oh, yeah. a cult. It's because he had a cult following. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. My, my mistake. <laughs> uh, I, I left one cult for another. Then maybe No, I, this, I hate using that word to be honest with you. Um, so before we leave the book of Mormon, I just want to get into one other troubling aspect of it, which is we call it the historicity, the, the anachronistic portions of the book of Mormon. And that means like, let, let's say we just grant the book of Mormon is the most true book that was ever published. Um, it was divinely inspired and Joseph Smith brought it to us from God himself. We grant all that. There are still some problems within the text of it. Uh, and I'm just going to skip over some of the like sexism and racism. Um, okay. But <laughs> the, it's probably the, a topic that, for its own full episode, right? Yeah. And we're going to touch on that maybe in here in a minute. And it's going to be tough not to bring in like modern cultural society uh, interpretations of this. I want to try to keep it as historical as possible, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but with the anachronisms, that just means, you know, when we're talking about an ancient document taking place in, um, you know, the 600 BC to 1000 AD era, and we're talking about um, horses and steel and millions of warriors dying in a one location, um, wheat and bees, all these things that um, science has shown some evidence that don't really show up in in the Americas until after Columbus's era. Um, were you guys aware of that, or or how would that make you feel as an active believing Mormon? Um, well, I guess it depends on what, like if you had a time machine and went back and asked me at different periods of my active believing Mormon um, era, then, then I would have a different answer for you. If you went back, like I would say 10 years uh, or 15 and you asked me that question, I would, I would brush it off. I would find some apologetics to turn to. I would say maybe, you know, what they described as horses wasn't really horses, but the closest word that Joseph could think of to translate it, it was just the word horses. You know, I'd come up with some bullshit and, and, you know, five years later, I probably wouldn't buy any of those uh, excuses or explanations anymore, but I would still like, there was a period of years in my active Mormon life where I was aware of those issues and still willing to sit with them. Still not that uncomfortable by them. And part of why is because at that point, like towards the end of my active, my, my activity in the Mormon faith, I was no longer considering the book of Mormon to be a literal historical document but I still considered it to be a sacred and important document. And so, and maybe even now, like, you know, that I'm no longer participating in the LDS faith, I think that might still be my stance on what the Book of Mormon is to me. Cause I think it's still a document that um, was formative in my life and is formative in, in lots and lots of other people's lives. And so there's a sense in which I can see it as, as, quote unquote spiritually true, you know, depending on what you mean by true, right? And so I don't think that whether the book literally happened to a historical group of people that arrived in the Americas on a boat, um, 600 BC, I don't think that matters to the question of whether or not the book is powerful or the book is true. Now, of course, it does matter when we're talking about an institution that, um, claims that the book is historically true and then punishes people for suggesting otherwise. Um, that's when it does matter, just as we were talking about earlier, right? When the LDS church is very rigid about the kind of truth or the kind of interpretation or the kind of um, 
engagement you can have with the text, then it gets messy because I don't I don't like that they're so rigid about how we approach the book. But I do think that the book can be approached healthily and spiritually even in a variety of ways that may include um, just as, as a work of fiction, as a work of inspired fiction. Yeah, for me, in terms mm-hmm. of like the anachronisms, I actually remember like, I think for me, what I, because I knew about a lot of that stuff as a member as well. And I, I honestly think that in my mind, I just thought they hadn't found it yet. Like I remember I clung to anything that ever came out that was like, oh yeah, they, they found these horse bones in California, like Southern California. And, and it proves that horses, you know, or like down in Southern Utah, there was a cave with horses drawn, you know? And every time I heard something like that, I was like, see, see, like, it was like, I was always waiting for something to prove that it was Mm -hmm. all historical and true. And I knew that it would come and I knew that we would be proved right. Or I thought that we would. And so I never, I never thought like, oh, horses were tapers or, um, you know, wheat was actually barley or corn or what, you know, like, or whatever the one, what were the ones that were here? Barley, wheat was not. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, but for me, it was like, oh, we just haven't found it yet. You know, like there's still, it's still coming. We'll, we'll, we'll be proved right in the end. Yeah. And I think that's um, one of the stances a lot of people take is that it is a, a lot of active believing members take is it is a true historical document. That's, you know, the most correct book ever published. Um, But we just haven't, the science just hasn't caught up to God's ways and we just haven't been fruitful enough in our investigating. Um, I'm trying to find this, in the early days, they were trying to say that the Smithsonian Institute had um, backed the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Um, hmm. Oh, here it is, right here. They, they, and and the news outlets were covering it, saying, you know, oh, the Smithsonian's using the Book of Mormon to go try and dig in Central and South America to find all this stuff, and the the Smithsonian Institute Natural History uh, releases a a statement that says your recent inquiry concerning the Smithsonian Institute alleged use of the book of Mormon as a scientific guide has been received in the Smithsonian's by the Smithsonian's department of anthropology. The book of Mormon is a religious document, not a scientific guide. The Smithsonian institution has never used it in archeological research or any information that you have received to the contrary is incorrect. And it goes on and on, but I just think that was so classic that the Smithsonian's just like, wait, what'd you say? Um, here, <laughs> let me, interesting. Uh, let me clarify that for one second. I remember there was this quote floating around when I was a missionary and before where I don't know where it came from, but the idea was, you know, in our lifetimes, we will see proof, you know, and it will no longer require faith to believe that the Book of Mormon is true. I remember hearing that quote just floating around everywhere. So that that rhetoric that Michelle is describing was very, very in the air. It was very prevalent. Yeah, there's there's a lot of research that goes into this by Mormon apologists going down to to central and South America and, and trying to prove it. There's books about it. And I, I remember there's one, one really popular one that's more like a picture book. And it just says like, look, this looks like this could be this. So, um, yeah, they find I, like an old burial site called Nahum and then they link it up with the place in the early part of the book of Mormon where they bury someone at a place called Nahum. And they're like, see, this proves that this is where he was. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I went to a, I went to a fireside once where they were, uh, talking about that 
book and I, I can't remember even which one it was, but in the very end, it says like, if you give all these circumstances, the odds of the book of Mormon not being true is like one in 16 million or something like that. Right? <laughs> wow. there's, this place is packed. There's like 150 people in here. <laughs> it's, somebody yells out, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Um, but yeah, I've even gone on a cruise, an LDS history cruise, where we went down to Belize and uh, Honduras and went to some of these ruins and we're like, see, this this is where this happened. And, and uh, you know, I... Oh, you know what? That I Sorry to was, interrupt. That reminds me. So you know how they found recently in the jungles um, of Mexico or... I, I believe it was Mexico. They found a, a huge, large, like civilization population, uh, like city hidden in this jungle. Did you guys hear about that? No. Uh-uh. So they found through, um, it's like th- through like infrared light, they've been able to uncover this huge civilization. It's like a huge Mayan city with pyramids found hidden under jungle. So they've recently found this, right? And I had some family members who were talking about this and I could tell by the way they were talking about it that they were like, oh my gosh, see, look, this this proves there's this lost Mayan city that was discovered. Oh, it's in, in the Guatemalan jungle. And, um, oh, and in, in anyway, so they're like, see, this, this proves what we're talking about. And I was like, yeah, but the Mayan culture... If you research the Mayan culture at all, it literally has nothing in common with the Book of Mormon people and vice versa. There are so many things in the Book of Mormon that are not attached in any way to the Mayan culture um, or history. And there are so many things in the Mayan culture and history that are not do not appear in the Book of Mormon. And so it's just interesting, though, how when you're active, you use things like this to, um, to really, as like faith promoting, you know, like we, Oh, look, this huge Mayan city was found when really the Mayan, I mean, even church, church historians do not say that the Mayans were the people in the book of Mormon, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a, maybe an important point to make. Like there are people that believe that, you know, like, Oh, this is proof. And when I was down there, they were showing us radio or radar maps of, of the entire region. And they were saying like less than 5% of what they know is buried has been uncovered. So there's still a lot of work and research to be done down there. And there are church historians that don't believe kind of the, kind of the norm, like you're saying like, Oh, see, this proves it because somebody uncovered another temple. Um, There are, there are active believing members who are aware of this stuff that still somehow believe we're just pointing out some of the issues that should cause pause, not necessarily like throwing everything in the wastebasket just right. because, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And this is where we might delve into some of the more cultural stuff, but I kind of want to get into some, some priesthood history. Um, today men have the priesthood, um, 30 or 40 years ago, only white men had, had priesthood authority, which is the authority to act in God's name. Um, so that I kind of want to try to stay away from the cultural aspect, but um, historically speaking, that wasn't always the case that just white males had the priesthood. And there are some 
there's some neat history to go go into about that. Uh, my favorite is the founding of the mm-hmm. Relief Society. Are you guys are you guys familiar with how how that was founded by chance? Uh, not too much. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that the women in you know this is, I guess, up for debate. But um, if you read kind of the the wording, it's the women are basically ordained to the priesthood. Um, they are ordained with healing powers and Blake, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You probably know the wording better than me, but, but they are, it sounds to me like they're ordained to the priesthood. And what's interesting is that women were actually like, they would heal the sick and they would heal, you know, they would lay their hands on people, give blessings Um, and maybe it was just blessings of healing or whatever the case may be, but they were doing that up until like 1900 some point at like sometime is when it stopped. I feel like in the thirties or forties or something. Yeah. And that, that's, I think that's the important takeaway from this because, um, I actually recently had a conversation about this with an active believing member and, um, she she kind of took a different interpretation than I would on some of this stuff. But yeah, Emma was confirmed without the laying on of hands as the presiding officer of the Relief Society. And that's important because um, there's a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about Emma being the elect lady, which has some connotations as well, just that um, the prof- prophesied elect lady would be a woman of great power and Joseph Smith said that that was Emma Smith. And so she was called to preside over this new organization without laying on of hands. He, Joseph Smith just read that revelation and said she was confirmed when this revelation was given. So a little similar to how he may have received his priesthood authority. Um, and then as they ordained the first and second counselor, uh, Elder Taylor was asked to uh, give up his seat. And he was replaced by Emma. And in Mormon culture, you know, whoever's presiding sits at the head and kind of runs the show. So as things are changing, you know, Elder Taylor was asked to preside in the beginning. And then once Emma got her her authority, she was asked to replace him. Um, well, and it like the language is very and I'm looking at the LDS church essay on this very topic and, you know, he like Joseph Smith says, I now turn the key to you in the name of God. Um, it's very much it has the language of of giving them the priesthood in a sense, you know, preside over the society. And he yeah, he he says, We ordain them to preside over the society and let them preside, just as the presidency preside over the church, free from censure. Um so those are those are some key words that imply priesthood authority. And this isn't the only instance. It has lasting effects, like Michelle was saying, where women were using their priesthood authority to give healing blessings to their children, like if they came home sick from school as late as the early 1900s. Reiterate that um, language. Even in the essay, it says, these statements indicate that Joseph Smith delegated priesthood authority to women in the Relief Society. But then, of course, they go on in the essay to explain that away, you know, like, oh, well, he only used that because they had to redefine those terms later on and da, 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 da. But. And a, a significant portion of this history has been 
erased that I think is important. And it's that when these women are using their priesthood authority to bless their children and stuff like this, sometimes um, a lot of people thought that the women had more healing power. They were more maternal and more feminine, and they were just better at the healing side of the priesthood. So they were going to women more often than they were going to men in the priesthood. And um, that, along with other circumstances, caused Brigham Young to completely disband the Relief Society. And it was later reorganized as a subset of the the LDS Church's authority. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. Yeah. And, And I think a lot of people forget that. And, you know, people talk about the founding of the Relief Society and how it was so wonderful and Another interesting fun fact is the second day of the Relief Society meeting, uh, Emma was asked to iterate some of the the rule, the some of the oh, what do you call it? The what the organization is going to do as an organization, you know, some of their right statement of purpose, I guess. And she starts talking about how a lot of people are bad mouthing Joseph Smith and saying that he's a polygamist, and you know, and <laughs> we want to silence some of these rumors and and track down where these are coming from, not knowing that a couple of his wives were (laughs) in attendance at the time. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, it's very, it's just very fascinating to me because I, it's almost like, I'm like, gosh, sometimes some things at the beginning in the early days of the church were so progressive. And then they were like, you know, like stamped out and it's, it's kind of frustrating yeah, the church started as a as a kind of strangely radical um, group in the woods. <laughs> like, it was, it's a very it's very interesting to see how it has morphed into uh, a very conservative institution. Yeah. yeah, and they talk about you know, like in the essay, just reading here again for anyone who's you know doubting that this was part of the early days of the church. Um, this is in you know lds.org. It's the um, gospel topic essays and they just you know talk about like joseph smith that says respecting the female laying on hands if the sisters should have faith to heal the sick let all hold their tongues and let everything roll on um yeah and so women were giving blessings you know laying their hands on people up until says like the 1920s um so they did try uh, and then like in 1926, church president Heber J. Grant affirmed that the first presidency do not encourage calling in the sisters to administer to the sick, um, but to call in the elders. So who hold the priesthood of God. So it's interesting because even though I think, I think there was kind of a lot of different changes along the way, like maybe at some point they didn't have like originally they were thought to have the priesthood, but then the priesthood was taken away, but then they were, could still heal on the, you know, through faith with the laying on of hands, but then that was also taken away. So it was kind of a, you know. Yeah. And the, there was, let's not forget the priesthood that's used in the temple. Uh, the worthiness interviews are a relatively new um, process to get, to be, to be worthy to enter into God's house. You, in the early days, a lot more per capita Mormons were going through the temple and they're having priesthood ordinances done on them by women, um, which is still the case today, but it's a lot less prominent. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting. And then, um, another interesting historical aspect of priesthood is obviously the race card where, um, those of African descent weren't allowed to participate in priesthood ordinances 
until 1978, which is like more than a decade after the civil rights movement in America was taking place. So it's like Michelle was saying a little maybe behind the times. Um, Right. And I think the gospel topic essay on this one is the most forthcoming in maybe saying, uh, you know, this was the times we just were rolling with it. There may be some racist undertones and we, we've since grown past that basically saying, whoops, a daisy, it was racist. And we learned from our mistakes. It doesn't say that, but that's the tone (laughs) I get from it. That's the exact wording. <laughs> well, but I think it's important to note that it doesn't say that. It is. Because it would be great if it did say that. Um, it would be uh, a powerful, radical essay for the church to release if they were to admit explicitly that their former policies were flat out racist. But instead, what the essay seems to do to me is to say, hey, there are all these like bullshit excuses for these policies, and most of these excuses were racist. Um, and so don't believe those anymore, but anyway, we've changed the policy and everything's good now, but they don't actually admit that the policy itself as directed by profits was wrong. And so that, that is the part that hurts me the most is that, um, I think the Mormon church could do tremendous progress, could make tremendous progress if it were willing to admit that its leaders who claim to speak for God sometimes fuck up and like, we have to be able to admit that in ourselves. Like this, this is true for anyone, any institution, whether you're religious or not religious, you can't make any progress in your relationships with yourself or with others or with the world. If you're not willing to admit your own wrongdoings and the LDS church's greatest sin in my eyes is its unwillingness to own up to what it has done and how it has hurt people. Cause for, like you said, for this, the years and years and years, they were, um, willingly excluding people of color from receiving the priesthood uh, and they didn't have any good reason. Now they've admitted that none of the reasons we've heard are good, but they haven't admitted that it was wrong and they should admit that it was wrong and they should imply in their uh, admittance that they're going to continue to do things wrong and that they're going to continue to try to be better. That's what they should admit because that doesn't show weakness. I think what they're afraid of doing is showing weakness. They're afraid of showing like, oh, like Thomas Monson or Russell Nelson or Gordon Hinckley are are weak men who make mistakes. They're afraid of admitting that. But if they were to admit that, then those men would seem so much stronger to me. It would be so much more powerful to follow a prophet like Russell Nelson. If Russell Nelson got up to the pulpit and said, hey, guys, I'm going to say things that are wrong. I'm going to do things that are wrong. In the name of God, I'm going to do things that are wrong. And God will rebuke me for it. And I'll try my best to correct them. If he were to admit that, I would have so much more respect. The problem is like religious dogma. It's like if we have the truth and we receive direct revelation from God, we can't be wrong. And so it's like they're walking this tightrope of trying to hold on to that so tightly like we have the truth we are the truth we speak directly with god and so if they admit any weakness then are people going to think they don't have that anymore you know it's it's awful because really i i don't i think a lot of people would be fine with that if they were like yeah we did these things wrong but for some reason they're like holding on to that so tightly and it trickles down to the members like just last year or maybe it was two years ago um this neighbor woman this is right around the time i stopped going to church um so yeah it must have been two two and a half years ago she came over and went and was talking to me and um we were specifically talking about this essay the ld church essay on um race in the priesthood 
And she made this comment. It was so, so I was like, yeah, you know, I've read the essay. Like I, you know, I, they clearly said that that was not ever intended to be from God, you know? And she was like, oh, well, you know what? Like I've talked to some people who are, who work for the church and, 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 you know, nobody really knows who wrote this essay and, and they don't, you know, this essay is going to probably be rewritten because it just wasn't very clear and, and, um, you know, it wasn't really correct in, in the way it was written. And I'm like, no, wow. this is on like LDS.org, <laughs> you know? So even when the church itself has a document that seems to admit some sort of wrongdoing, members you're saying are going to brush that away and say, that can't really be the yeah, church. Well, it's yeah. like, they're like, oh no, this was just written by some Joe Schmo who like, this wasn't really approved. And, and yes, like, um, you know, there was, there was like a reason why blacks didn't have the priesthood until 1978. And there's a hiss, like she was going on about like, there's like, a, and she's, and it wasn't coming across as like this racist rant or anything. It was just like, it was more about like the inerrancy of the church, you know, and like, no, it's just that there was a reason, even if, you know, it it wasn't a good thing, like throughout history, God has done these things and, and the essay is blah, blah, blah. So anyway, it was just kind of. Yeah. Well, I remember using similar rhetoric, uh, defending that saying things like, well, Jesus wasn't even allowed in the tabernacle because of his race. So you know, there's just times and seasons. I remember using that quite a bit as a true believer. Yeah. I think um, going back to what you said a minute ago, Michelle, about how maybe the church is afraid of losing members because if they let go of that tight grip on their inerrancy uh, rhetoric, then the people who are clinging to that inerrancy will leave. I think that's the crux of the problem is, is the question is, who do you want to drive away? <laughs> Cause you're going to drive away somebody, right? So if you're in charge of the church and you, uh, and you choose to push this inerrancy narrative, this idea that your prophets are infallible and that, um, past mistakes aren't really, you know, uh, people acting in God's name inappropriately, but that there's something else, you know, um, if you choose to keep pushing that, then you're going to, push people like, like us three out of the church. And if you, um, and if you do the other thing and you, and you, uh, lean in on the fallibility of, of humans, including prophets, and you have sermon after sermon about how, look, maybe we're prophets, but we're just dudes. So please don't just take <laughs> no us at our words. Like dudes. that would, that would keep, yeah, well, we're just dudes and lady dudes. Yeah. If that was if that was the narrative instead, then you're right. That would also push people out. But I think it would push only the racist, shitty people out. <laughs> like it would push the people out who are looking for an excuse. Uh, anyone who's looking for an excuse, anyone who thinks that denying black people of some sacred right is okay, is a racist. Like, and that doesn't mean that they're a horrible Klansman kind of person. That doesn't mean that they're out like lynching people every weekend, but it means that they espouse a racist view. And if that's the kind of person whose feelings you're trying to protect, then you're a racist organization. So um, that's interesting, Chris, because not about like, who do you want to push out versus not? And Blake, you might know more about this than me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I believe the community of Christ, formerly the restored 
um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, they actually, so their original doctrine was that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. And that was, you know, very, right. a very strong, you know, firm teaching. Like, no, Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. That was Brigham Young and onward. And that's why we, you know, left and blah, blah. Well, I think, I don't know how long ago it was, but, you know, when people were able to get at information and figure out that Joseph Smith did practice polygamy, um, I believe the community of Christ came out um, and said, okay, we were wrong. And I think that they did that. They said we were wrong and we, Joseph Smith did practice polygamy and da 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 you know like they admitted like all of these things I love but that. they lost like 75% of their membership because people wow. do not like people stay in religions because they think they're true they think that that is the path like it's not i mean there are a lot of people i think now it's becoming more popular to be in religions for like just the social aspect but for so long religions have been this like way to kind of control um, society. Like, and, you know, as society has developed more and, and we've gotten, there's laws and there's, you know, things that, that kind of control us better than religion. Religion was originally this, I believe this thing that kind of kept people in line and it was, it could be a good thing, but people are like, I'm going to have a reward at the end of this. Like all of this, you know, all these rules I'm keeping, there's a reason, like I'm going to have a reward and this might be hard, but there's going to be, you know, and so when you find out that's not true, people leave in droves. Yeah. That, that is a fun story. Community of Christ is always um, super open about accepting new documents and history. Uh, It's, it's troubling that um, Joseph Smith the third, who was the first prophet, well, I guess the second prophet of the community of Christ, which is the RLDS at the time when he was sworn in, so to say as prophet, he said something along the lines of my father was not a polygamist. And, uh, because he was a good man, because if he was a polygamist, he would have been a bad person. And so I believe he wasn't. And he interviewed his mom on her deathbed and Emma said, no, he wasn't a polygamist. And I don't know if anybody really knows why she denied it on her deathbed, but she did. And the community of Christ really adopted that mantra that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. That was a, an adulteration performed by Brigham Young and his Utah church. Um, so yeah, I really mm-hmm. commend them too. They've been ordaining blacks and women and gays for, <laughs> for a long time now. Um, That's great. Yeah. And before, before we get off this uh, blacks and the priesthood, I want to just spout off like a couple interesting historical tidbits. Um, a lot of people think like, well, Regardless of how racist we became over the years, maybe under Brigham Young's reign, it wasn't always that that way. You know, there was Elijah Abel. Um, he he was ordained by Joseph Smith. And he was African descent. Um, I think it's important to note before we started recording, we were talking about how people can maybe pass as white, and um, you know how they can exercise some white privilege, even though they may not be quote unquote white. Elijah Abel, if you Google him, he he was of African descent, but he he looked pretty, uh, pretty non-African. Um, Mm. and Joseph Smith is quoted to have saying, had I to do with the Negro, had I, I'm sorry, let me start over quote. Had I had anything to do with the Negro, I would confine them by strict law to their own species. 
Joe Smith that's, said that? Um, that's a little wow. bit racist. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. Like, and, um, see, I I did not know that. I think, like, as post-Mormons were like, see, Joseph Smith, like, he he ordained blacks to the priesthood. and But now it sounds like he didn't really. Well, if you read the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, as I do, as um, maybe perhaps inspired, but probably just Joseph Smith's creations, um, there's quite a few racist racist doctrine in there. I think the current doctrine of the church still holds true to the book of Abraham, um, where they talk about how being of African descent is a curse because they couldn't make up their minds in the preexistence of which side to take. So they they were allowed to come to earth, but they're cursed with the dark skin. Um, and you have Lamanites being cursed for their wicked ways with a dark skin. And, um, and then... Yeah, there very was racist. A, yeah, pretty racist, I think. And um, there was a, a black man by the name of Green Flake in the early Utah days. And he was paid by his masters as tithing to the church when they moved to California. Oh, wow. They didn't want to take him with him. So they paid their tithing in the form of a slave named Green Flake. Um, there was a black gal by the name of Jane Manning James. She's really famous early Mormon. She was so faithful throughout her life. She helped build the Kirtland Nauvoo and Salt Lake temples. She was not allowed in any of them because of her race. And um, she petitioned so strongly to just be sealed in the temple and have her, have her endowments done. So she finally had them done vicariously and they invented an ordinance just for her so they could seal her to Joseph Smith as a servant for eternity. Yeah. So oh, wow. basically um, she had her, yeah, it's, it's pretty, I, I think racist, but it's pretty tragic either way. Um, and I think where, where Brigham Young really sealed the deal in the, in the racist policies uh, was his inherent racism. And he, he's quoted, if you Google Brigham Young racist quotes, you'll come up with a slew of them. Um, but one of the most popular ones is, shall I tell you the law regard? The law of God regarding the African race, if a white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot, and this will always be so. Jeez. So I think that solidified some racist doc- doctrines that really, uh, I mean, we still experience today, but that really put put a wedge in, in uh, you know, ordaining black members for, you know, almost a hundred years. Right. So, um, I've got, I've got a few more topics to go over, but I'm starting to think that maybe we should, um, wrap up this episode and maybe do like a part one, part two type of thing. What do you guys think? That sounds all right. Okay. And Michelle, you have to run right now. Yeah. I've got to go in a few minutes. Okay. So I think we'll stop it there. Uh, as far as the history goes and, um, just pick it up next time I host a group group interview and uh, where we still have to talk about the Book of Abraham, polygamy and polyandry, mountain meadows, and amongst other things. So wow. let's hold off those and just, just <laughs> count those as part two of this. Kind of, I hate to end on that note. It's kind of troubling. I feel like really heavy right now. <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> but do you guys have anything you want to add before we kind of sign off a little bit? 
Uh, racism sucks. <laughs> I don't know. What, I don't, don't know. Like it? Yeah, I mean, um, you're right. It is a it is a downer ending, and I think those topics that you teased for next time are also downer topics. Uh, so it's probably going to be two heavy episodes uh, for any listeners listening to both in a row or anything. Um, buckle up. But yeah, I mean, it sucks. And the insidious thing about all of these ideologies is how they seep into beliefs and and rhetoric without without necessarily being noticed and so i think it's good that we're bringing some of these things to light yeah but it is it is quite heavy yeah and i i, I want to just point out too it's important to note that um these are our interpretations of some of these historical issues i really encourage people to just go and dig dig for themselves and come up with their own interpretation because there are apologetic views on some of these like we were talking about horses uh, a lot of apologists think that those were actually meant to be tapers. So uh, warriors were riding on, on, on these like big looking <laughs> things. Uh, so <laughs> it's important to note that there are different stances and different interpretations. And we're just, we're just demonstrating three. Can I, right here. Right. Can, in closing, can I just um, say something? I <laughs> kind of going back to the whole racism thing. Um, I just a few weeks ago, somebody said something to me. Um, I said, like, they made some comment about, well, there must be some reason why we are more advanced than, like, other civilizations. And it was clearly... Um, we meaning white people? Yeah. Like, you know, European, wow. North... Yeah. Americans. And it was, it was clearly, uh, like... I, I and I don't want to infer. I don't want to, you know, like put any kind of. He didn't. That's all he said. But in my mind, it was a racist comment. And I, it was really interesting because only like a week later, have you guys read the book Guns, Germs, and Steel? No. no okay. Oh, everybody who's listening. So I haven't read the book, but I have watched the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> There's a documentary. Uh, Jared Diamond is is the author and he also does this documentary um it is and it's free online you can find it online so guns germs and steel i think it's like five parts i binge watched it he really addresses why certain communities developed more quickly than others and um he did hit, I mean, he did research on this for years and years and years and years and went to these outlying places that still aren't developed and there are legitimate reasons why certain um, air and it, and a lot of it has to do with your geography. A lot of it has to do with um, what you have available to you resources and um, animals that are available. I mean, it, it's crazy. It's really interesting, but I think it's critical to have an understanding of why things developed the way they did. Um, there is not, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of people have different ideas of why that is, but I just, if everyone could go read Guns, Germs, and Steel or watch the documentary, I think it'll help a lot in understanding why the world kind of developed the way it did. And it has nothing to do with intelligence or abilities or capabilities. Um, it has everything to do with really luck, you know, and, and kind of where you ended up. So I would recommend it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for bearing with me through this uh, tough stuff. And that's that's why I wanted to talk about it. Uh, you know, history, a lot of people find boring. Um, 
but I, I like the history that has kind of a little different narrative than the one that regardless of whether they've been hiding it secretly under the first presidency's eyes or whether we just didn't read it ourselves, it's still a little bit troubling and provides a narrative that is counter to the one we grew up with. And so it's causing us to question things and causing us to interpret things a little bit differently. And um, my hope is that the listeners will take some of this stuff and not just think of us all as just antis, just trying to tear the church down, but trying to just provide information and hopefully they'll uh, take that information and go find some more information on their own let's go in the garden you'll find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside down on the other side was a production of the open stories foundation between july 19th and october 25th of 2018 Side is lighter when you turn it around. Everything stays right where you left it. Everything stays, but it still changes. The intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays right where you left it.